0: Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. You know, some people that are on fire for God have to backslide to have fellowship with a lot of church members. Uh, because they're just on a different planet. They're on a different plane. I mean, they're walking with God, and they want to talk about Jesus, and the other people don't. And and we're embalmed in a cultural Christianity that wouldn't fly anywhere else in the world except America. So apathy is number one. Manipulation is number two. And manipulation can take various forms. Legalists, Pharisees, Sadducees, instead of a Vital, and I think that's, uh, yeah, that's right. By the way, manipulation is also playing on people's feelings and trying to make Christianity nothing more than emotional and feelings oriented. But manipulation, which does not lead to a vital relationship with God. Listen, if I can talk you into something, somebody else can talk you out of it. That's manipulation. It is not preaching the truth and love and power. It is not speaking the Word of God. If I can manipulate you to say, well, you're going to have to be like this before you can be acceptable, then somebody else can tell you, you can come join our group and you can be like this and be acceptable. And then there's confusion and chaos. There's not order and there's not unity. So manipulation. Steve Brown uh, in his book, I think is in his book Living Free, said, we play the game of let me show you that I'm a good Christian. And the game is killing a lot of Christians who have left the fellowship because they simply can't play the game anymore. You see, we are to seek the Lord. Nothing less, nothing else. Nothing more. We're to seek the Lord. And and what I'm afraid of is that we have bought into as we get into the church and we learn the lingo and we learn the language and we, we understand, oh, that sounds good. And we, we hear people pray and we think, oh, I'll pick up on that phrase. That's a good phrase next time I'm called on to pray. And, and we, we see somebody do something and we start mimicking one another. I was talking to somebody yesterday on the phone. We were talking about another issue. And, and he said, have I ever told you about the time Uh, We were talking about Miss Bertha, and he said, "You know, uh, Miss Bertha, and I'm telling you, you you are unfortunate in that you never met Miss Bertha. But I'm telling you what, if you met her, you never forgot her. Miss Bertha could peel the paint off a back wall." I mean she lived to be 99 she was a she was a southern baptist missionary and i have had her pull me by my ear and grab me and pull me down an aisle before and i want to tell you when a little lady that comes up about this tall is rebuking me and i'm just asking god to take me home to see jesus right now because i'm telling you miss bertha was tough and she could whip a bull i'm telling you she was tough and and one night the guy i was talking to uh yesterday it was him Ron Dunn, Manly Beasley, Jack Taylor, and Bertha Smith were on the platform at Texas Week at Falls Creek in Oklahoma. And they had all prayed. And the guy I was talking to last night, he he said it was my turn to pray. He said, So I started praying. He said, I started thinking, I got to do this real good because Miss Bertha's here. You know, and I got got to thinking. So I started, I, I just started saying, Oh, Heavenly Father, who art glorified in heaven and everything. And he said, I wasn't two sentences into the prayer. And she said, Hey, Quit lying and start praying. (laughs) He said, Mandy, you know, I'm sitting there going, there's Ron, there's Manly, there's Jack, there's Miss Bertha. I got to sound good. He said, I should have just not prayed. He said, quit lying. Start praying. You're just lying to God. You don't mean all that that you're saying. You're just lying to God. Aren't you glad that God doesn't answer some of the prayers we pray when we're trying to impress people? manipulation. And sometimes in our praying, we think we can manipulate God to think the way we think. John Wesley talked about moving toward perfection. And if we aren't moving toward perfection, what are we moving toward? If we're not moving toward being renewed in our mind and thinking with the mind of Christ, then If God tells us to renew our mind, if God tells us to think on these things, if God tells us where the old life is passed away, then the Bible presupposes that that life is possible. It assumes that we understand that the life that is preached about and taught in in the Scriptures is possible for us to live. And so we are to move toward perfection. We are to choose, as Joshua said, Twenty four fifteen says, choose this day who you will serve. Now, let, let me talk about this manipulation for a second. We're not to point one yet, but you're, don't get panicked. I read this quote and I wrote it down. We do things for what seems to us either consciously or unconsciously to be perfectly logical reasons. What seems to us to be perfectly logical? Well, let's let's make a rule. Uh, uh, Let's establish a rule. Rather than saying, let's live in vital union and communion with Jesus Christ in the fullness of the Spirit. I love what Ron Dunn used to say. Ron Dunn said, get your sin confessed, get clean before God, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and then get up and do what you think is the best thing for you to do. And truth of the matter, you say, well, uh, I need to pray about it, you know well, I don't need to pray if I'm going to stop at a stoplight. It seems like that's the best thing to do. In fact, I don't even have to be spirit-filled to do that. If I got sense, I can do that. You know, we we can over-spiritualize things to the point of saying, look, if I'm walking in the Spirit, if I am doing what God told me to do, if I'm abiding in Him, if I'm listening to Him, if I'm sensitive to Him, if I'm confessed up and cleaned up, then get up and live today and do what seems best because what seems best is what the Holy Spirit's going to prompt you to do. And if you're doing what's not best, the Holy Spirit, if you're filled, is going to be grieved and you're going to know it. I mean, you know when you grieve the Holy Spirit. Nobody has to tap you on the shoulder. You know when you step off uh, the track and out of line. Nobody has to say, hey, whistleblower. You know when you do it. You know when you've gone too far, when you've done too much, when you've said too much. L- legalism, ladies and gentlemen, is a cop out. In fact, I think it's the coward's way out of Christianity. Because when we're legalists, we think, I, I've obeyed my rules. I don't care if I'm living a godly life. I've checked the boxes. Warren Wearsby, in his commentary on Galatians, I just want to read his definition of legalism. I think it's a great one. What really is legalism? It is the belief that I can become holy and please God by obeying laws. The belief that I can become holy... And please God by obeying laws. It is measuring spirituality by a list of do's and don'ts. Now notice this next statement. You ought to write this down because you're going to run into a legalist. The weakness of legalism is that it sees sins, plural, but not sin, the root of the trouble. Legalism sees sins, plural, but not sin, the root of the of the trouble. It judges by the outward and not the inward. Furthermore, the legalist fails to understand the real purpose of God's law and the relationship between law and grace. The legalist doesn't understand the purpose of the law. The law does have a purpose, but the legalist thinks the purpose of the law is to keep us in line. The purpose of the law is to tell us, you can't stay in line. You keep blowing it. The law tells you you're a sinner. That's what Paul says. We're going to look at it in Romans in just a moment. But, you know, have you heard people talk about quality of life? You know, we talk about that with the aged. We say, well, you know, we just want them to have quality of life. In, In these last stages, we want them to have quality of life. Can I tell you something? Quality of life has nothing to do with where you live, what you drive, how much money you have, or what you wear. Quality of life has to do with where you are with God. And I've met some people who are bedridden, who have more quality of life than some people that live in mansions because they know what life is really all about. Quality of life is not determined by your checking account. Quality of life is determined by your relationship with Christ and how you're living with Him. So, Let's look at the first thing. The life God intended does not come naturally. There are three basic categories I want to look at. First of all, people who live for themselves. People who live for self. They're fleshly driven. And living for self, how it affects me, how it impacts me, what's it going to do to me, what are you going to ask of me, what's required of me? It's me, 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 I, I, I. Living for self. And that's not just outside in the world, that's in the church. You remember Paul said in Philippians, their God is their belly and their glory is in their shame. And he said, for there are many, not a few, there are many who I've told you are enemies of the cross of Christ. Why are they enemies of the cross of Christ? They're self-centered. And they're inside the church. Paul was not talking about lost people. He was talking about people in the church that were in the wave and in the wake of the movement of God in the early church in Acts and had been a part of that first missionary effort, and yet they were flesh-peddling. And Paul says, these people are me-centered. They live for themselves. You know the four goals of the world system. I've given them to you before, but I'll give them to you quickly. Fame, fortune, power, and pleasure. If your passion, if your drive, if your purpose for living is fame, fortune, power, or pleasure, you are playing into the world system. You are not thinking with a Christian worldview. If you want to be famous, listen, God exalts and God puts down. Fortune. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He'll give you what He can trust you with. Power. Jesus said, if you want to be great, you be a servant. If you want power, be a servant. Pleasure. We all know that the world is eaten up with people who are living their lives for pleasure. Those are the four goals of the world system. I love what Martin Luther said, and you ought to write this down. Martin Luther, by the way, is one of the great commentaries on the book of Galatians. Martin Luther said, the flesh ever seeks to be glorified before it is crucified. Now, you need to think about that for a minute. The flesh ever seeks to be glorified before it is crucified. We want to have crowns and streets of gold and be glorified and be somebody in this world. And and what Martin Luther is saying, you don't get glory until heaven. You're supposed to live crucified now. It is the crucified life that you and I are to live. It is a crucified life, the dying to self. I want to tell you that, I don't know about you, but for me, if I'm not careful, pride can stick to me like my skin. And it can for all of us. I mean, it's it's such a part of our rebellious spirit against a holy God that we get proud and puffed up, and we just think, what's it going to do to me? How am I going to live? I watched a guy in, in Mega Metro this week. He pastors a huge church. He's probably running three, or 4,000 people. He's been there 37 years. Bless his heart. <laughs> 37 years. You know what he's doing? He's retiring. You know where he's going? He's going to a church in North Carolina that has a caution light and a general store. And I looked around that room, and I didn't see anybody saying, man, that sounds good to me. Why don't we all do that? Because we can get proud of how big we are, and forget that we're only where we are by the grace of God. You know what? The pastor that pastors the church with the caution light in the general store is no less of a pastor or man of God than the guy that pastors 20,000. It still takes a holy man to do what he's called to do. It's not size, it's sort. Because there are a lot of churches running 10, 15, 20, 30,000. They're about 80 miles wide and about one inch deep. When persecution comes, they won't be running that much. So, living for others. Not only living for self, but living for others. There are three basic ways that people live, living for others. Now, I'm not talking about the one another's in Scripture. Love one another, pray for one another, serve one another, encourage one another. Uh, that's obvious we're supposed to do that but i'm talking about people who live for others and their approval living for others approval do you remember some of you are old enough to remember this i remember when this first this first came out in the 60s and 70s joy jesus others you if our priorities in our life is not jesus first others second you third We've got the wrong priorities. But I, I, when talking about others here, I'm talking about I'm talking about people that live to try to impress or please others. You know, peer pressure doesn't stop when you graduate from high school. Can I get an amen? amen? I mean, it does not stop when you get away from high school because you're in a job and somebody else is in a job, and all of a sudden he gets a promotion, he gets a better car, he gets a bigger house, he gets this, and guess what? You feel the pressure to perform. You feel the pressure to live up. You know why? Because you're living worrying about what somebody else thinks about you instead of being at peace with yourself. And I have watched men and women lose their marriages and lose their children because they always got to keep up with the Joneses. And guess what? The Joneses have already owned their third mortgage of their house. And you don't have a credit line to do it, so you can't keep up with them anyway. Living for others and then living a, what do people think about me? Can I, can I just tell you something? This may be a surprise to you. They don't think about you. They're too eat up worried about themselves. They're not thinking about I went all through high school worried about what everybody thought about me. You know what I found out? They never thought about me. You know, some, some of you guys and gals, you're so worried that you get to end up at the cool table with the cool kids you know what, the cool kids are worried about what you think about them. Now, they put on a front that says that they don't, but they do. At night, they're worried that you won't sign their annual. Better, they're worried that you won't ask them to sign their annual, because then they're really not cool, and that worries them, and they get all eaten up with it. You know, The truth of the matter is, most of us worry about what people think, and they're not thinking, and they're certainly not thinking about us, because they've got their own problems to deal with. But then there's the life that is the right life, and that is living to glorify God. The Westminster Confession says the chief end of man is the glory of God, and we are to live to glorify God. Can I tell you a great statement? I think C.S. Lewis is the one that made this. We only behave ourselves in the presence of God. If I understand that I am living my life in the presence of God, not only is God around me, but most importantly, God is in me. Christ is in me through the Holy Spirit. If I understand that, then I'll behave myself better because I realize the presence of God is not at church. The presence of God is in me. He has chosen to dwell in me. And so that being said, why do I worry about what everybody thinks? Why am I worried about me? I should be focused on Him. When Isaiah saw the Lord, he didn't say, Hey, have you looked at my resume? Hey, Lord, do you you know what I drive? Do you know where I live? Do you know how much money I make? Do you know what kind of clothes I wear? He said, woe is me. And Isaiah lived for the glory of God because he saw the glory of God. And there's nothing wrong with us that a little taste of the glory of God wouldn't cure our pride. All right, secondly, the life God intended is not automatic. It is not automatic. First of all, we have been justified by faith. I love what A.W. Tozer said. Tozer said, the doctrine of justification by faith is a blessed relief from sterile legalism and unavailing effort. It is a relief the doctrine of justification by faith, just as if I'd never sinned. That's the simplest way you can put justification by faith. The doctrine of justification by faith is a relief. It is a deliverance from legalism and from self-effort. You see, justification by faith is alien to works religion and to law-keeping because it understands I can't keep enough of the law. I can't be good enough to please God. It is Christ in me. And so Paul deals with the works of the law, and he confronts those who say that by obeying the Mosaic law, we become righteous and we become holy. Horatius Bonar said, Christ and ritualism are opposed to each other as light is to darkness. Either ritualism will banish Christ, or Christ will banish ritualism. Now, why doesn't God justify us by keeping the law? Number one, the law was never intended to save. People were not saved by keeping the law in the Old Testament. The law was an awareness that you can't be saved because you can't keep the law. It was never intended to, to save. It shows us that we are sinners. God never gave us the law, the Mosaic law, for us to be saved by keeping it. That's the same mentality that people use to say, my good works outweigh my bad works, so I'm going to go to heaven because of that. Keeping the law doesn't save. Secondly, the law demands total obedience. Look at, Turn back to Galatians 3. The law demands total obedience. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10. For as much as are the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So if you're going to be saved by keeping the law, you've got to keep it all. There's only one person that has ever lived in the history of mankind that has kept all the law, and that's Jesus Christ. He's the only one that never broke the law. He lived up to all the demands of the law. He was God in flesh. And we are justified by faith, by the faithfulness of God, and through faith in Christ. God was faithful in the way He set out salvation, and through our faith in Christ, we are saved and redeemed. Not only have we been justified by faith, but we are called to live crucified lives. We are called to live crucified lives. Now, I want you to, after you write that down, I want you to turn to Romans 7. Romans 7. We are called to live crucified lives. Romans chapter 7, verses 4 through 7. Therefore, my brothers, and I'm reading out of the, what is, uh, this is the Holman uh, Version. Therefore, my brothers, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the crucified body of the Messiah, so that you may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we may bear fruit for God. For when we were in the flesh, now let me just stop right there. Flesh is used in Romans 26 times. Twenty-six times in one book, Paul talks about living according to the flesh. Ninety-one times he talks about it in all of his epistles, and hundred and forty-seven times it's used in the New Testament. God is opposed to the flesh because in the flesh you can't be saved, and you can't do what God demands. So he says, For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions operated through the law in every part of us and bore fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the letter of the law. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would have not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would have not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. What Paul is doing right here in Romans 7 is he's talking about the ineffectiveness of human effort to save us. He's saying, your flesh can't save you. Your good works. You're keeping the law. You're doing good deeds. Can't save you. And and in Romans and Galatians are books that are very closely tied together. And, and there's a dual connotation. One is that we are all burdened with indwelling sin. We were born in trespasses and sin. And secondly, that the desire for a law based relationship is impossible. You can't have a relationship with God based on keeping the law. That's impossible because you've already broken it. You're already a lawbreaker. If Kurt Cameron made anything clear in what he talked about sharing the gospel, he said, you know, have you ever stolen anything? Yes. Have you ever lied to anybody? Yes. Have you ever lusted after a woman? Yes. All right, you're a a thief, you're a liar, and you're a lustful adulterer. That pretty much, you know, guilty. So... What am I supposed to do? Well, I can't just say, well, I'm I'm going to stop doing that now, and then God will get me into heaven. No. It just tells you you can't get into heaven because you're a thief, you're a liar, and you're an adulterer. So because you're a thief, and you're a liar, and you're an adulterer, you have to fall at the mercy of God and plead for justification by faith and by grace. That's what Paul's trying to do. And so we live a crucified life. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Now, turn back over to Galatians chapter 3. Remember... Galatians 3.10, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. How come the curse has been removed from us? Because the curse was put on Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, the curse of my sin was put there. And he took my curse and my condemnation. He took what I deserved on himself so that I could be justified by faith. Therefore, I've been crucified with Christ. When Christ died, I died. I was there. You were there. We died because Christ died. And so we are to live a crucified life a life abandoned to Jesus Christ, a life submitted to Christ. Why? Because it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's not me. It's not about me. It's not about laws. It's about the empowering, the enabling, the equipping, and the sustaining work of the Holy Spirit in my life. That's what it's about, finally. The life God intended cannot be approached casually. It cannot be approached casually. Now, now let me ask you to write this down or just remember it, one or the other. My ability to live the life God intended. My ability to live the life God intended is predicated on abiding in Christ. My ability to live the life God intended is predicated on abiding in Christ. It's not predicated on me trying harder, turning over a new leaf, redecorating my life, and I said the redecorating intentionally, you know, come up, clean up, but in the end it's just all old decorations and it's just all flesh. My ability to do what God commanded me to do, it's impossible for me to do what God commanded me to do. In fact, the only thing God ever expects out of me is failure. And the only way I can succeed in the, in the Christian life is by abiding in Christ. I cannot succeed by trying harder. And so, if I live for Christ, the first thing that happens, I'm going to think differently. I'm going to think differently. Not only am I going to think differently, I'm going to evaluate my life differently. I'm not going to evaluate my life by what other people think or how people feel. I'm going to evaluate my life by am I abiding in Christ? Am I doing what Christ told me to do? I'm going to evaluate my life differently. Thirdly, I'm going to have a different motivation. My motivation is not how do you feel about me? My motivation is am I pleasing God? Fourthly, I'm going to be driven by a consuming purpose and passion. I'm going to be driven by a consuming purpose and passion. In other words, I don't have to figure out if I'm going to be excited about what God's doing, if I'm going to love what God's doing, if I'm going to enjoy what God has allowed me to do. I'm going to be excited because I have a purpose and a passion for the things that God has given me to do. If I'm abiding... That is it's predicated on me continually to abide so I can bear fruit, much fruit, more fruit. And finally, I will view sin and compromise differently. Now listen to this quote by Thomas Brooks. The first work of the Spirit is to make a man look upon sin as an enemy, to deal with sin as an enemy, to hate it, As an enemy, to loathe it as an enemy, and to arm against it as an enemy. Sin may be comfortable, it may be enjoyable. I would never say to anybody, Sin's not fun. Sin is fun, or we wouldn't want to do it. But I'm telling you, with the fun comes some bitter consequences. And until we see sin as an enemy of Jesus Christ, until we see our wanting to sin, our wanting to live according to our own terms, as an enemy of the cross life, the life that God intended for us, will continue to play around the edges. Vance Havner said, we've got too many comfortable saints expanding their waistline instead of expanding their spiritual coastline. And I would submit to you that we can't be casual. There is nothing more alien than a walk to the cross, than apathy and lethargy and a casual approach. You know, the big conference has been, I think this is the last year for passion. Changing up. Anyway, but this is for the big, huge thing. You know, the one thing I love about the one day in the passion conferences that they're doing is they're, they're saying to a younger generation, hey, get your eyes off yourself. Get over yourself. You know, somebody had to say that to me when I was a teenager. Somebody had to say that to me when I was a new Christian. If I hadn't had to speak, people speak to my life that did, I wouldn't think the way I think. But they told me, you're not who you think you are and you're not what you think you are. You're nobody until you know you're nobody. You're never going to be anybody. Folks, if we're going to live the Christ life, then there's nothing more alien than flippancy or arrogance or apathy or casual approach. It takes everything we've got to live for Jesus. So living the Christian life is not, first of all, the Holy Spirit never approves what the Word condemns. Well, you know, the Spirit led me. The Holy Spirit is never in disagreement with the Word of God. Jesus, the Father, the Spirit are one. The Holy Spirit inspired the words of the Bible, every word, every way it was said, who said it, who wrote it, the whole nine yards, and the Word of God. The Spirit will never approve what God condemns. If you hear somebody say, well, well, I just talked to the Lord and He gave me freedom to do this, and it's outside the bounds of the Bible, I'm not talking about legalism, I'm talking about if it's outside the bounds of the Bible, God didn't tell them to do it. I've had people say to me in 35 years of ministry, well, God told me to do that. And God gave me, the God understands my weakness, yea, He does, He wants you to die to it. Secondly, the Holy Spirit never blesses what God curses. The Holy Spirit never blesses what God curses. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit never loosens what God binds, and He never binds what God loosens. The Holy Spirit is consistent. One thing you know about the Holy Spirit of God, He is consistent. Living the Christian life demands all of me surrender to all of Him. All of me surrendered to all of Him. Secondly, it demands, as the old song says, my life, my love, my all. Not a portion, not just Sunday, not just when I'm around Christians. The Holy Spirit, the Christian life, the crucified life, the life that God intends for us to live demands my life, my love, and my all. Thirdly, it is empowered by Jesus Christ living through me. It may be the simplest and most profound prayer I've ever read. A.W. Tozer prayed, "Keep me, Lord, from ever hardening down." I'm going to say it a few times so you can get it. Keep me, Lord, from ever hardening down into the state keep me lord from ever hardening down into the state of being just another average christian keep me lord from ever hardening down to the state of being just another average Christian. Can I tell you that if those of us in this room tonight would pray that prayer every day and mean it and ask God not to let us settle for being an average Christian, I want to tell you, we'd see God move in revival. We'd see God's spirit work. We would see the baptismal water stirred. We would see families restored and pulled together. We'd see God do some things that are incredible. If our prayer would just be, God, don't let me settle for being just another average Christian. I don't want to be an average pastor. I don't want to be an average dad. I don't want to be an average husband. I don't want to be an average Christian. I mean, I want to give my life to something that's bigger than my life. That's the glory of God. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Katt. For more information about Sherwood, visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. Thanks for listening and join us next week for another podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church.